As a clinical endocrinologist, are you curious about how recent research may impact your clinical practice? Do you struggle to dissect recent publications or connect the literature to patient care? My name is Chase Hendrickson, and I host Endocrine Feedback Loop, a monthly journal club podcast focused on reviewing recent articles published in the Society's clinical journals. Each month, I'm joined by an endocrine educator and a guest expert to perform an in-depth analysis of an important article and to understand how it advances the field and informs our clinical practice. This podcast is an Endocrine Society members-only benefit and can be accessed under the journals header on endocrine.org. Find out more about the podcast and becoming a member there. I think you'll benefit from our discussions and hope you'll join us as we learn together as a part of Endocrine Feedback Loop. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Endocrine News Podcast. I'm Aaron Lord. It's giveaway time again here on the podcast. If you're a regular listener, you know that sometimes we like to thank you for listening with a little something. Today, that little something is a fashionable pancreas pin. To receive this gift, just listen to this episode and let us know what you think about it by taking a very quick survey. That's it. You can find a link to that survey in the description of this episode on endocrine.org slash podcast. Today, we'll be talking about time in range an important topic for anyone with an interest in treating diabetes. We're excited to have this episode sponsored by an unrestricted educational grant from Novo Nordisk, Abbott Diabetes Care, and Medtronic. And now, on with the show. Today I am joined by the brilliant faculty who put together a fascinating session at Endo Online 2020 titled, Breaking Bad, Reducing Glucose Variability and Increasing Time and Range in Patients with Diabetes. Joining me today is the session chair, Dr. Stephen Edelman, clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Edelman. Thank you very much for having me. And also with me are the session faculty, Dr. Jeremy Pettis, assistant professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, and Dr. Rehan Lal of Stanford University Medical Center. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having us. So we're going to touch upon a lot of things today. One thing we're going to hear a little bit about is hypoglycemia, and we've talked about that on the podcast a few times before. We often hear there's a good deal of unawareness around the dangers of this condition. So what do we need to know about the risks that are associated with hypoglycemia? Let me start off a little bit with some statistics. You know, it's amazing that people don't realize that severe hypoglycemia defined as requiring assistance is a pretty serious condition and very common, much more than people think. In fact, severe hypoglycemia where someone may need emergency glucagon, go to the emergency room, is more common in type 2s just because there are so many more people in type 2. So it's been estimated that 30 to 40 percent of people with type 1 diabetes experience a severe hypoglycemia event per year, one to three per year. And 50% of people with type 2 have experienced hypoglycemia, and one in five will experience severe. But because, once again, there's so many more folks with type 2 diabetes, the numbers are actually higher. So a lot of people think, oh, type 2 diabetes, they don't get hypo. The other thing I'll say is that despite 
having CGM and insulin pumps, we're still seeing a lot of severe hypo and for many reasons. Not everyone has those type of devices, especially CGM, and something that we spoke quite a bit about in our original program. Yeah, we recently published this article where we looked at about 30,000 type 1s in the country and looked at rates of severe hypoglycemia in these type 1s according to their A1C. And it used to be the standard teaching that we only kind of had to worry about severe hypoglycemia in the people that had extremely tight control, A1Cs less than 6, these kinds of things. And what we found from this data is that severe hypos are common regardless of what somebody's A1C is and actually show that there seemed to be an increase in severe hypoglycemia with increasing A1C levels. So I think the take-home message there is that people with type 1 diabetes are at risk of severe hypoglycemia, period. You can't say, oh, it's just this cohort of people or this cohort of people. It's something that's unfortunately extremely common. And it's really, you know, when I talk to patients, it's, yes, you know, high A1Cs, high blood sugar levels, that can cause problems with, with microvascular disease down the road, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years later of high blood sugars. But one severe hypo, you can get a car crash, you can have a seizure, it can be deadly. So, you know, you don't want to be doom and gloom with patients, but just at least making them aware that this is common, you know, ways to, to prevent it, ways to mitigate it. This is something that you should be talking about essentially every clinic visit. Hey, Rahan, I know you're the only person I know that is a pediatric and geriatric endocrinologist and uh, I'd like to ask uh, in kids are they still doing the fried egg at night at camp and at home? Yeah this is a great question Steve. So I think one of the realities here that we all have to understand is between Steve and Jeremy and I we've had type 1 for 100 plus years and one of the things is that we all made it and we made it without CGM. So it is one of the realities that, uh, you know, one can sort of have some uh, body awareness and, and pick out some of these low blood sugars. And it's tough for the uh, pediatric population, and especially as we get to extremes of age, very young or very old, then it becomes uh, a problem in terms of potentially sensing low blood sugar and almost always requiring help. If you're three or four years old and have type one, uh, you're almost always going to require help for a low blood sugar. So we are trying to get past these previous notions that you know we, we have to feed someone before bedtime. And CGM has helped with that because it provides a little bit of reassurance to parents. During honeymoon though, you can see blood sugars below the 70 range, which is sort of where we have defined hypoglycemia in its most modern variant. And so in honeymoon, that can also be a little bit confusing for parents. So it's crucial that one educates families about different glucose ranges in different disease conditions. Speaking of ranges, one thing that you talked about a lot in your session was time in range. So what is it and what does the science tell us about it that makes it so important as we consider treatment approaches? Rayhan, why don't you go first on that? Because I think, you know, even after the program, you sent Jeremy and I a good article uh, outlining the ranges and how they came about. So effectively, um, time and range is what we're calling this optimal glucose range that we want 
people to be in as much of the time as possible. And the uh, Badalino paper goes into this expert consensus on what those guidelines should look like. For most people with type 1 and type 2, they set the time and range to be between 70 to 180 milligrams per deciliter. And for those who are pregnant, 63 to 140 milligrams per deciliter. It's a very important factor that has received much more attention, especially lately. With the current pandemic situation, we are left in a world where getting A1Cs in clinic and otherwise might be a challenge. So we can now use time and range as a surrogate measure of long-term glycemic control. And uh, Roy Beck has also been pretty instrumental in showing the correlation back in the DCCT when people were doing seven-point finger sticks between time and range and other measures of uh, glycemic control and long-term glycemic outcomes. So let me ask you this, Dr. Lal, uh, since you are a pediatrician, also a gerontologist, is the optimal time and range the same across the board, or are there times where you're looking for maybe something different? In the expert guidelines, of course, they make this suggestion that you can personalize glycemic targets for some individuals. So for example, if you have somebody who is on the very elderly side, we would like to reduce burden on the individual. We want to make sure that you know they're not having to wake up in the middle of the night to go pee because they could trip and fall. But at the same time, we really do want to reduce hypoglycemia, which can contribute to confusion. So it's a balancing act there where we don't necessarily need to worry about hyperglycemic complications decades down the road, but we need them in somewhat reasonable control to maintain activities of daily living and not amplify any neurologic disease that there may already be. So we have to sort of personalize this when appropriate, but in terms of long-term outcomes, the 70 to 180 range seems to be pretty reasonable as an outcome measure. I can just add that one thing we covered in our program on time and range is setting the alerts and alarms, and, and this relates to your question, it has to be individualized. Even within the same adult population of type 1s, some may come in and get a CGM with very poor control, and you don't want to turn them off to being alerted so much that their partner divorces them. And so, you know, the alert settings change depending on the patient, their comorbidities, presence or absence of hypo-unawareness, degree of control, et cetera. So it's, once again, it just comes down to a good conversation between patient and provider. And the only thing I'll add that I said in our session was that I like time range for a number of reasons, but mostly because it means something to both patients and to providers. As Rayhan mentioned, we're all living with type 1 diabetes, and for the three of us, time and range just means time that diabetes isn't bothering you. You're not low and having to eat carbs. You're not high and having to take insulin. And we love to text each other that when our time and range is awesome and challenge each other that way. And that means something versus an A1C might not mean something to a patient. You know, the A1C is seven, eight, nine. That's not been kind of an intuitive number. So time and range does mean something. And on the provider side, more time and range means generally better glycemic control, less hypoglycemia, less extreme hyperglycemia. And as Rehan was mentioning, it's now been correlated with improvements in microvascular disease. So 
it's something that I think we can all agree upon that, that matters. Sounds to me almost like it's a guidepost. So I have to ask for the clinician, what are the most effective means for integrating time and range into their practice? Time and range is really closely related to the, the use of continuous glucose monitors. And the more that clinicians start using CGM, the more that they're automatically going to integrate time and range into their practice. So I think for the three of us that, you know, we have a lot of patients in our continuous glucose monitors, we can look at these reports and assess in a, in a matter of seconds, really, how well these patients are doing in terms of overall glycemic control, what their time and range is. I have conversations with patients about it. I let them know what their goals are that Rehan already went over. I put time and range and time above range and time below range in all my notes so I can see improvements along with changes in the A1C. So it's really an invaluable piece of data. But then again, you know, linking it back to it, it just comes with the CGM. And as we are using these devices more and more, they're the standard of care in type 1 diabetes, period, but we're using them more commonly in type 2s now. I think it's just going to be the, the natural evolution of, of diabetes clinical care to, to gravitate towards time and range. Time and range, that phrase is new. Everybody thinks they're really cool using that phrase. In reality, it's been around for centuries, you know, less highs, less lows, more numbers in the desirable range. And just to add on to what Jeremy said, it's really with the advent of CGM that this term uh, became popular. And it, and it really dictates how people do on a day-to-day -day basis and has much more value in that regard than a hemoglobin A1C, which is kind of the gold standard, but obviously doesn't indicate if a patient uh, has a lot of variability on a day-to-day -day basis and may relate best to long-term micro and macrovascular complications. Just adding on to what was already said, this is a, a concept like any other new concept in diabetes, right? We didn't always have hemoglobin A1Cs. We didn't always have glucometers. So just like that, as we get a new technology, we find ways to integrate it into our practice. And this one actually is very salient right now with the pandemic because it's something that can be provided to us without sending a patient to a lab or seeing them in the clinic. So I think for better or worse, the current situation has forced us to sort of get more creative with our methodology for clinical practice. If we think about time and range as being basically a goal zone of where we want to head, could you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that are inherent with getting the patient into the optimal range and, and how do you address those challenges? When we look at someone's download, we look at time and range, we look at the average glucose, the estimated A1C, and then if the time and range is good, or even if it's not good, the next step is really looking at time above range and time below range. And then you, you say, well, let's focus on one of those two areas. If, if it's really time below range, then you, you can hone in on that and actually make your clinical visit much more efficient and look at their insulin dosing, their basal rate, their insulin to carb, their sensitivity factor, and look at the 24-hour profile to find out at what time of the day are they getting low. And then, it, then you can even look at individual days and have a discussion with the patient what's going on. So the answer really depends on what the issue is, what time is it, does it relate to insulin dosing or lifestyle modification. So it's a, it's a really open-ended question. Jeremy, Rahan, you want to jump in there? 
I think that's a tough one because obviously we want everybody to be time and range 100%. So the question is really, you know, how do we improve diabetes care? But I think what you're getting at, Steve, is that the CGM and time and range, it enables you to be much more specific with a visit. You know, so let's think back to before we had CGM and, you know, a patient would come in, you'd have their A1C, maybe you've had some blood sugar data, and you were really kind of shooting in the dark in terms of where they might be having problems, if they're having hypoglycemia or not. And now you compare that to a person that comes in, Steve said, maybe hypoglycemia is their, is their problem. So you know that that's a problem. And then you can see specifically it's happening after dinner or overnight. And you can make the, the visit so much more specific to that one issue rather than just, you know, your A1C is high or low. So again, it's just a very helpful tool to really identify the problem is what I'm saying. I think I will echo one of Jeremy's points from the session is that yes, clinicians can do retrospective review of these data downloads, but really the CGM is for the person with diabetes. It gives them every five minutes insight into what's happening with their condition. And for the clinician, it is very important to not take time and range in isolation because somebody could have a time and range of 70% with say 10 to 15% hypoglycemia. And that would be a very different situation than the person who has 70% time and range and 30% time above range. Because as we mentioned, the hypoglycemia aspect of this is concerning. And it's, it's concerning because it can be a acutely debilitating, and it takes away time from the things that you want to be doing. So that to me is the biggest real world risk of the hypoglycemia is that it is functionally disabling so that a person who wants to go about living their life isn't able to. It's obvious that CGMs are a tremendous advancement that are helping a lot, but how should patients select a specific CGM? And is there any concern that patients may not be using CGMs correctly? I think, honestly, the sad reality in the U.S. system is that healthcare is based around money and the dollar. As it turns out, any of these systems might be the right choice for someone, but if their insurance only pays for one of them, you're probably going to end up going for that one because you're not going to want someone paying hundreds of dollars for a device if they could be getting one on the cheap. So it is very important, first of all, to be practical with the approach. Our real deep desire and goal is that CGM becomes cost-effective enough that it can be used worldwide. Uh, you know, diabetes is not exclusively a American problem. It's not exclusive to the 1%. We need cheap CGM that can go to other places as well. So we have to look at the practicality of it. And then, yes, you can talk about whether you want real-time CGM, first of all, or intermittently scan CGM, real-time CGM being usually uh, up five-minute uploads of Bluetooth data directly to a receiver, whereas intermittently scanned CGM devices like the Libre 2, those will get data when you scan it with a near-field communication device, which also exists on your phone, but now also has real-time alerts, so it's sort of blending the real-time and intermittently scanned 
approaches. And then some people would like to have an implanted CGM, like the one from Eversense, or they may prefer the Medtronic ecosystem and prefer a CGM from them. I have an additional viewpoint. Uh, I agree with everything Rayhan said. However, I think many times the onus is on us caregivers to not just say, here's a CGM. People need education on so many aspects of it, how to use it, how to make the settings correct, especially the upper and lower limits, instructions on how to use the data, how to use the trend arrows, not only in insulin adjustment, which is key, but also lifestyle modification. So I really think that a patient success is really inherently related to the education they get when they get the CGM based on their own individual type of diabetes and their own metabolic state. So in any field that is seeing rapid advancements in technology, it can be easy to sort of fall behind, you know, not be able to keep up with what's going on. Um, is there a concern among any of you that, you know, as better and more improved systems are coming out, that it might create more and more challenges for, you know, some of our population to basically do it right <laughs> when it comes to how they manage their own device. And even for the healthcare provider, being able to keep up to make sure that their patient is as well educated as Dr. Edelman is, is talking about. My only take on this is that it's a good problem to have. You know, when we were talking about this just a handful of years ago, you know, we didn't have as many CGM options and certainly didn't have as many kind of hybrid closed loop systems that integrate the CGM with the pump. So it is getting harder to keep up with and it is rapidly evolving. You know, some of this, this technology, uh, you know, let's take the CGM, for example, can, can update you know, very frequently. It might be just a change in the algorithm or the new system. There's somewhat of an easier pathway to the FDA than, say, a new drug. So maybe every year there's a new system that's, or even every six months you might come across something new. So it definitely is on the provider to, to, to keep up to date. And then as Steve mentioned, a lot of this does need to come from the patient too. You know, these are people that are living with this disease 24 seven and, you know, educating themselves on what is available and what are the pluses and minuses of each system. But um, again, all I can say is that I'm just so thankful for this, boom in technology and diabetes just lends itself really well because it's such a data-driven disease. The more data you have, the better people do. And then again, integrating with these with the, the, the pump systems. So we're at a really cool time in, in diabetes that in you know the next couple of years, these systems will continue to improve to eventually fully you know, automated insulin delivery, which is amazing. And that's you know what we've always been shooting for. And we're really on the precipice of that. That is indeed very exciting. And what also is exciting is as more and more uh, advances are being made that there's probably more and more features that are being added to the CGMs or pumps. Are there any features out there that you don't think patients are taking full advantage of or they may just not be aware enough about? With insulin pumps themselves, you know, there's a lot of advanced features like dual wave bolus delivery is just one example, square wave, things like that. However, with the advent of sensor augmented pumps, I would say a lot of these issues go away because these systems have modulating basal rates and it makes having multiple basal rates and these other options just obsolete. I think we have two officially approved hybrid closed loop systems on the market, one made by Medtronic, the other by Tandem. There's an off-label non-FDA approved called looping. And I, I do think that's the standard of care. And I think that once patients start using these more with accessibility and price limitations, it makes these devices make up for patients not taking advantage 
of some of these other features that they weren't before. And of course, all these systems are different. Rayhan went over them uh, at the end of our program last time because it, it could be another topic of a whole day. One of the things that has served me really well in this field is having an electrical engineer and computer science background. So I'm strongly in favor of getting more engineers into medicine, just like we require calculus for people who become physicians. There's no reason why we shouldn't have uh, short seminars on control theory and control design and, and simulation. But what I would emphasize with all of this is once all of these devices are coming to market, we need openness and transparency from the individual uh, manufacturers because without that, people without that engineering background can't have an informed discussion of risks and benefits unless they know how things work under the hood. As Jeremy said, it is an amazing thing to have more options than ever, but unless we understand how they work, we can't compare one to the other. Dr. Pettis, do you have anything to add? I think with the CGM, you know, as we were talking about, there's really kind of two main purposes, the real-time information and then the retrospective downloads. And I completely agree with Rayhan because the real-time is what patients use the most and probably get the most benefit out of, and CGM is primarily for the patient first. But there's a lot of value in the retrospective data, and I think more patients could look at their own data. It's still pretty often when a patient comes into clinic that they don't even know about the app for the CGM that they're using that will give them all their retrospective data. You know, regardless of the, the, the type of CGM you use, it's really accessible, easy to understand information. And once you go over that with a patient, it's something that can really help them keep on track. They can look at their time and range every day if they want, or once a week, or once every two weeks to know if they're doing better or worse, you know, which direction they're going in. So I think it's, you know, on us as providers to go over these downloads, talk about time and range goals, to empower the people so they know, you know, just like blood pressure, cholesterol, you know, this is where I want to be. If I'm not there, I need to come back in sooner or work on X, Y, and Z. So I still think that that is one feature of CGM that we need to continue to encourage the patients to use. Just thinking back to what features are not considered or used frequently, people use carb ratio and sensitivity factor for every bolus that they deliver during the course of a day on a pump. But you'll find that in the community of people with diabetes, frequently there is this comfort with changing basal rates, but not carb ratios or sensitivity factors. So wouldn't it be wonderful if people could use their CGM data to feel more comfortable about changing these other settings, which are frequently left to the healthcare provider? So if our goal is for the patient to be in the optimal range as much as they can be. Do you see anything on the horizon that's gonna help you as a healthcare provider and as a patient to do even better in the future? Do you see anything on the horizon that excites you? I think one of the chief issues right now is usability, right? So we are starting to get these automated insulin delivery devices, which you know Steve, Jeremy, and I all use. And I think they are very useful, but you know you have to be willing to wear a CGM. You have to be willing to put in an infusion set. So one of the technologies that is currently being worked on is extended wear infusion sets. 
And if you have a set that you can wear for, say, a week or two weeks, you can then just run a sensor wire through the middle of it and get a combined infusion set CGM in one port device. That would be really exceptional. And I think it improves some of these wearability considerations that prevent some people from starting. And of course, as the technologies improve and the systems develop so that you can have full closed loops so that it works with exercise and all these other myriad things which change our settings, that's going to be a bigger draw for people. But again, unless they're affordable and unless people can get their hands on it, it doesn't really matter how great the technology is. I was just going to add on that, yeah, I think, you know, we might start transitioning. These devices are really good at getting people with time and range to what Rayhan's point is just making it easier to live with diabetes. And, you know, some of the fully closed loop systems like the the beta bionics product coming out and as others move to fully closed, closed loop, start moving away from, you know, all this like sensitivity factors and card ratios to systems that, you know, you just enter your weight when you start. And if you want to announce meals, you can say it's a typical meal or a larger than average meal or smaller than average meal. So the way that people normally think about eating and living, I mean, most people, when they sit down to eat, they don't think I'm eating 47.5 grams of carbs and 16 grams of protein. And I have to think about when I exercise and how stressed I am and all these kinds of things. So just alleviating some of that just mental calculus that we ask of a lot of our patients to getting it to be more qualitative. Are you eating or not? And is this a typical meal? So I think that's something that we're going to see in just, you know, the next year or two as these systems, you know, will all deliver great time and range, but ideally become easier to use, not only for the person wearing them, but also the practitioner to get rid of some of the barriers to prescribing these devices. If you feel like you have to be, you know, an expert in card counting and things like that to now, oh, here's a device that it's simple to use and I can get in the hands of of more people. Just to add on, currently, we only have one approved adjunctive therapy for type 1 diabetes, and that's pramlantide. But uh, Jeremy has done a lot of work in glucagon receptor antagonists, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 receptor agonists in the area of type 1 diabetes. And lastly, you know, the monoclonal antibody anti-CD3 teblizumab, which has shown to delay type 1 for at least two years in humans, which was a tremendous advance in the human type one research area. So, you know, besides using technology, as we've been discussing, there's adjunctive therapies and preventative therapies that may be coming out in the future as well. Thank you to all three of you for this fascinating conversation and and, and taking the time to participate in today's episode. It was great having you with me. Thanks so much, it was fun. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, we'd like to give you the gift of a fancy pancreas pin. To receive that gift, be sure to take that quick survey letting us know what you thought of this episode. A link to that survey can be found in the description of this episode on endocrine.org slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. As a clinical endocrinologist, are you curious about how recent research may impact your clinical practice? Do you struggle to dissect recent publications or connect the literature to patient care? My name is Chase Hendrickson, and I host Endocrine Feedback Loop, a monthly journal club podcast focused on reviewing recent articles published in the Society's clinical journals. 
Each month, I am joined by an endocrine educator and a guest expert to perform an in-depth analysis of an important article and to understand how it advances the field and informs our clinical practice. This podcast is an Endocrine Society members-only benefit and can be accessed under the journals header on endocrine.org. Find out more about the podcast and becoming a member there. I think you'll benefit from our discussions and hope you'll join us as we learn together as a part of Endocrine Feedback Loop. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www dot endocrine dot org